Good morning. Um, my name is Adam. This is my wife, Megan. Uh, we're part of the Aurora uh, Community Group. Um, and today we're going to read the scripture for you guys. Um, we're going to read in English first, and then we're going to read part of it in Lao. Um, we formerly lived in Lao for uh, five and seven years, um, so that's why we know Lao. Right. So Megan will read in English first, um, Mark 20 through 29. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So now we'll read in Lao. Uh, we'll switch off every verse through verse 24, if you guys want to follow along. นาพระเยซูเจ้าท่านใดนั้นมักก็เฮ็ดหายเต็กหน่อยนั้นซักดินล้อมหลองกับพื้นดินกิ่งเกือกบ้ามาน้ำลายพื้นนายบักพระเย
No, but I'm thankful uh, for Adam and Megan. Uh, as they said, they're part of our, uh, we're part all in the community group, and thankful for uh, their service to our church. And uh, as I said, they lived in Laos, and I just wanted uh, to have them read in Laos to show that we serve a God that is a, um, a universal God, that he's not just a God here in America, but he is a God of the world right in every uh, tribe, tongue, and nation. And so uh, praise God for that. Hello, uh, if, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Mark Rohr. Uh, as you can see, I'm not Tanner House. I don't have the, the cool jeans on or the cool mustache, but thankful uh, to be here with you guys. Uh, Tanner and his family are on vacation right now and getting some uh, needed time with family, and so uh, glad that they are able to have the opportunity. And so if you would pray for them, that they would really have a restful time as they travel, uh, that they'd be safe, and as they get to their destination, that they would have a good time to uh, rest and rejuvenate and just spend time as a family. And we're thankful for them and their service to this church. Uh, today, as they said, we'll be reading in Mark chapter 9, and uh, we'll be starting in verse 14 through 29. Um, but before that, this text has been um, one that has been really uh, on my heart and mind a, a long time before I looked at this text to preach it. Um, and mainly the text uh, that will, that will, that's really going to hit home, I hope, um, is when Jesus says in verse 23, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And if, as I was reading this through this week, I was really affected with it um, and seeing that I am one who has a mustard seed of faith. And, and sometimes I would say it's even smaller than that. And if you know what a mustard seed is like, I think it's one of the smallest seeds there is, right? And in Scripture, that's why Jesus describes sometimes our faith or the kingdom of God as as small as a mustard seed, right? But we're going to see today that it's not about the, the quantity or the, how much we have faith in Jesus, but ultimately looking to Jesus, who is the object and source of our faith. And so as, as I, was, I was going through this, I was talking to my wife, Yadi. And I was asking, what's a good story that, that would really uh, resonate with this story of, of faith? Uh, someone that in history who has, in difficult times, uh, maybe times that looked impossible, but yet still had faith. And we talked about that. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Corey Tinboom, um, But if you haven't, I would say after you leave here, go look her up, buy the book. It's called The Hiding Place. Um, Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy were uh, German in, a, in World War II were Germans and they would uh, in that time instead of uh, since they were German they weren't they weren't into the concentration camps but what they did they were Christians and they would bring Jewish people into their home and hide them from the Nazis so that they would not get placed in the concentration camps and they did this for I, don't, I can't remember how long but for a while and then the Germans found out and they arrested uh, the dad uh, their dad, Corey and Betsy, right? And they ultimately tore the family apart, and the father went uh, apart from, the, from his daughters and ultimately died. Um, and uh, the sister, Betsy, died, and Corey actually lived, and that's how we have the book called The Hiding Place Today. Um, but again, I, I recommend that book. But one thing I want to point out from this story as we get in our text uh, is this story from The Hiding Place. Um, as I said, Corey and Betsy, they were sisters, and they were in the concentration camp because um, of their desire to save the Jewish people, and they were caught and put into a concentration camp, and again, they were Christian. And their sister, Betsy, as the story goes, it says, Betsy knew death was looming, 
for the majority of the women around her. So she was determined to share the gospel. Right? So they're in this concentration camp, and Betsy is in there with these other women, and she knows that death is going to happen to all of them, right? Because that's what, that's what we remember as the Holocaust happening, that they would uh, kill the Jewish people. And so Betsy, knowing this, had uh, this burning desire to share Jesus with these people before they were put to death, so that when they were put to death, they would go, with, hopefully, to heaven, right, if they were repented of their sins. So Betsy had a few pages of Scripture, not the whole Bible, but a few pages, and, and that, of course, that was against the law, Right, and so if, they, if she was caught with these pages of the Bible, she would be killed on the spot. But Betsy, knowing what God had called her to as a Christian, to share Jesus, even in the midst of this terrible situation, right, she had faith that the Lord would protect her and, and use her. One of the stories that is amazing to me is that um, uh, eventually, as, they were, as their time went on in the concentration camps, they would strip search the, the prisoners. Right? And so Betsy, knowing this, knowing that she had scripture with her, and if they strip-searched her, they would find these pages and kill her on the spot. But listen to this. I love this part. Uh, and, and in the book it says, Betsy thanked the Lord for the fleas. And what she means by that is that as they were in these rooms, their bedding was hay. Was hay right? And so and during that time, the hay was infested with fleas, and so was Betsy. Right? And so instead, when, when, she was, when they were called out to come and be strip-searched, the German troops said, hey, let's leave her here. She has fleas. We don't want to deal with that. Uh, let's just leave her here. She's going to die anyway. And so Betsy says, I thank God for the fleas because the Lord protected her from being strip searched and then finding the scripture on her. Um, and I just thought that was just the most amazing story. In the midst of an impossible situation, Betsy and Corey were people that were still looking to be faithful Right, still trusting the Lord. Again, I'm sure their faith, again, was as small as a mustard seed because of the situation they were in, but yet they still trusted in Jesus, who is the object of their faith. And so as we go through our text today, I want us to see that faith is not about how big or how much we have mainly, but who our faith is in. Right, and so as we, as we go through our life, I know we experience many difficult situations, maybe on the daily Right, especially if you have kids, there's a lot of different things that come up as me and y'all have experienced this past weekend. Um, but we're thankful to, to, we serve a God who's faithful. But again, I want us to see that it's not how much, how big or how much faith we have mainly, but it's in the one who our faith is in. So that end, let me pray for us as we begin in our text. Father, thank you for this opportunity to meet. Thank you, God, for uh, just the, uh, the freedom to meet in this room, God, as we think about people in Lao, as we think about people all over the world, Christians, brothers and sisters, meeting. Uh, they may have to be meeting in secret, Lord, um, because it is illegal uh, to open up Bibles in, in, in those countries. And so, Lord, uh, we thank you that we have the freedom here in America to do this. And so, Father, I pray that we would not just take this time lightly. God, this will not just be another Sunday to check off, um, but, Lord, we would... Um, God, be attentive to what you have to tell us today through your word. Father, I pray for people in this, the people in this room, God, for my heart as well. Uh, God, as we have many different things going on in our lives, so that our hearts are pulled this way and that way. Father, I pray that through, our, through the hearing of your word this morning, that you would remind us that our, our faith is not dependent mainly on how much we have, but on and who it is, what our faith is in, which is you, Jesus. And so please encourage us in that. And uh, God, just be glorified. And it's your name we pray. Amen. 
So as we saw last week, as Tanner preached about the transfiguration in the above text, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus were up on a mountain, right? And there, there on the mountain, Jesus' identity as fully God was put on display. He was transfigured, becoming radiant. Some evidence of this in, is in Hebrews 1.3, which says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and it holds the universe by the word of his power. So as Jesus, as we saw last week, when he was up on the mountain, he was transfigured, right, and in front of these disciples. The disciples are truly seeing that this is not just a mere man, a mere prophet, a mere good man, a man that heals, but he is God in the flesh. flesh. Jesus is God, right? As Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Right? He is God. And so therefore, that we saw last week, as God the Father states about Jesus, he says, we need, uh, he says, and God the Father in heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So because Jesus was on the mountain and transfigured and being revealed that he truly is the son of God, God the Father from heaven cries out, this is my, this is my beloved son, listen to him. All right, mainly speaking to the disciples in that moment, saying, hey, don't disbelieve, but believe this is truly my son. You can trust him, right? And so the scene, uh, as we saw last week, is, is a glorious scene. Um, and by God the Father making this statement that this is my beloved son, that we should listen to him, um, it shows us that he has sent his son Jesus, who is a gentle and lowly shepherd to us who are the flock to watch over us which I think was amazing that my brother Demonte pointed out and reminded me that this is a, not just that he is God in the flesh but within that it's showing that Jesus is a gentle and lowly um, shepherd who has come to watch over us who are his flock which I just think is amazing but again we see in that text last week that the disciples are still questioning Jesus um, as verse 10 shows in, the, in last week's text which has been a continuing theme throughout Mark, right? Well, I believe, in the next second, I disbelieve. I believe, I, I disbelieve. Jesus, I just saw you feed 4,000 people, but now I'm in the boat and I don't have any fish. What's going on here, Jesus? Right, and Jesus is in the boat with him, and so it's these, it's these swaying moments of I believe and then I have unbelief, right? And so that's, what, that's, that's how we see the disciples as they're walking along with Jesus. And today, in the text, it's going to be similar to what we've been learning, and we're going to see what Jesus and how Jesus responds to us as we, as we go back and forth of believing and unbelief. Um, and I'm thankful for this text today because, again, that's my heart. I sway back and forth because of life's struggles, right? And I know all of us in this room, if we are truthful, that's where we are. And so I hope today, through the, through the hearing of this word, that we would be uh, reminded that it's not how, again, how big our faith is mainly, but it's in who our faith is in, which is Christ. So if you would, read with me verse 14 of Mark chapter 9. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? So we see here in this story Jesus and the three disciples coming down the mountain, right? They just experienced this amazing scene of Jesus being manifest as truly God, right? And I could just imagine, man, this is amazing, but what's going on here? And then they get down and they see this crowd arguing with the other nine disciples, right? So as they're approaching them, uh, we see this very large crowd, again, arguing 
Uh, and the crowd's not arguing with them, but it says the scribes were arguing with the disciples. So throughout our time in Mark, we've seen that ever since Jesus began his ministry in chapter 1 of 14, these three groups have been present. The crowds, as we see here in this text, who have either heard of Jesus' miracles or have witnessed them for themselves. And so as Jesus is continuing to walk and, and do ministry, the crowd is following them, following him. And just that they're, because they're in amazement of seeing this. As it says in Mark chapter 1, that they, they, they realize that this is a new kind of teaching, right? Uh, a teaching that's not just from a, a mere man, but this is a, a different teaching that they're hearing. And they want to understand it more and want to see these miracles continue to happen. Right? The second group, as we see the disciples, right? We see in this troop, the, the six and nine, and, and, and the three disciples coming down with Jesus. And we remember that in Mark chapter 1, that Jesus calls his, these men to follow him, right? To drop everything they have and to follow Jesus and to learn from him. And Jesus says in chapter 1 of Mark, I will make you fishers of men, right? So these disciples are learners or students are following Jesus as well. And lastly, the group that we see are the scribes. And these were men who were leaders of the day. They were men who knew most of the New Testament. They were men who... Uh, would transcribe the, 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 the text onto uh, their paper. So these men were very high status in that day um, and leaders in society. But these men were also, along with the Pharisees, as we've seen, seeking to destroy Jesus. As we saw in chapter 3 of verse 6, it says that the Pharisees and the Herodians were seeking to destroy Christ. Right? And ultimately, as we continue our walk through Mark, we're going to see ultimately, right, that's what Christ what happens to him that he goes on the cross and dies for our sins. And so that's the three groups that we see here. And so as Jesus and the three disciples see this, look at verse 16. Jesus asks a question. In, six, in verse 16, he says, He asked them, What are you arguing about with them? This question, uh, most commentators would say, was geared towards the scribes, showing perhaps Jesus was, was displeased that the scribes had taken advantage of his absence to dispute with the less knowledgeable disciples. But whatever the reasoning was, we hear another one speak up from the crowd. Right? So as they're arguing, Jesus asks this question, and before the scribes can even give whatever answer they, they want to give, look with me at verse 17. So as Jesus asks that question, waiting for the scribes to respond, verse 17 says, And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So as we're picturing this, this scene, right, of, of Christ asking this question and describes, why are you arguing with my disciples? Someone in this very large crowd of the sect says, Hey! I need your help, Jesus. I brought my son to, to you that you would heal him. Right? And so that's just an amazing thought to think that out of this huge, large crowd, this man steps up and says this. This, and as, this someone, as we'll read on, uh, as we see here, is a father. And so if you're a father in the room, I want you, this, is, this is very near and dear to me. Now that I'm a father, it really hit home more so. Um, just to, to understand where this is coming from, but uh, it says this, this father has a son who has a spirit, as the text says, who made him mute. And from reading about the other signs, uh, has a case of, 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 of I can't say it, epilepsy. That was a hard word for me. 
Um, but as we see in verse 18, it says that, as we can see, uh, verse 18 confirms this, that it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. But not only does he have this, this, this sickness, but we see verse 18 confirms uh, that it's not just a case of, of this sickness, but this son is, is possessed by a demon. As verse 18 says, uh, it says, uh, whenever it seizes him, right? So it's not just a case of his sickness, but it's showing that this boy is possessed by a demon, right? And so we're going we're gonna to continue to see that through our text. So we see in verse 17 that the father has brought his son to Jesus and calls Jesus teacher. And when, when someone calls someone a teacher, it's out of respect. That's a respectful address. The text does not say that the father knew Jesus could heal, but because Jesus had been doing ministry for some time, the father had heard about this teacher who heals. Right? So as the father has, has this son, he understands that there's someone who may can heal him because he's may have heard of it from one of his friends who is maybe part of the large crowd. Right? And Jesus had been doing ministry almost for three years now, so most of the people in that region that heard about this teacher who came to heal. So I want us to imagine right now, right in your chair, imagine... Uh, with me for a moment about the father. We will learn in the few verses that the son has been like this since childhood. Every single day since the boy was small, the father has had to watch his son experience this. I'm sure, like I would do for my son, the father has tried to do everything to help his boy, but to no avail. This father I could just imagine, must have been physically and emotionally exhausted. And if you're a father in here or a mother or have nieces or nephews or people near and dear to you that are sick, you can feel this, right? This text of just wanting and desiring your loved one to feel better, right? And this father, since the boy, this boy's been sick since childhood, and we don't know how old he is, but I'm guessing he's probably in his teens or older, Right, and so this father's been dealing with this since he was a child. And so we can just imagine him physically and mentally exhausted, desperate for his boy to be made well. As the father has been agonizing over his boy's condition, he hears about a teacher who heals. So picture with me that as soon as the father hears this, he grabs his beloved demon-possessed son and runs to Jesus. It's just like saying if, if there was a cure for cancer in California and your loved one had a condition of cancer that would cause them to die soon, you would do anything possible to get your loved one there, wouldn't you? There would be no, nothing that could stop you. So we see here that this father hears of this teacher, grabs his son in agony and desperation, and says, I'm trying to get my son to this guy who's, who says he can heal. Right, so as we picture that, picture this as we read this. So as the father approaches, he sees a large crowd and thinks, to him, thinks this must be Jesus. As he fights to the crowd, he realizes that Jesus is not there. Because remember in the text before, Jesus was on the mountain with his three other disciples. Right? And so since Jesus isn't there, the text says that he, tried to, he gave his son to the disciples. To say, please heal my boy. You walk with this Christ. You know this teacher. You've seen him. I've even heard that you have done this in, in the past. Please heal my boy. And we see that from Mark 
chapter 6, 7 through 13, where Jesus has given his authority to his disciples to cast out demons, to heal people. So we know the disciples have his authority to do this. However, once again, as the text says, the Father and the Son experience failure in the demon being, not being cast out. The disciples apparently cannot cast the demon out, and we'll soon find out why. So just think again, the Father, oh my gosh, there's hope, but then they experience failure again, right? So that's, that's just, just building this up as we, as we go through. So moving forward, we read in verse 19, Jesus' response of hearing about his disciples failing in verse 18. So verse 19 says, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So as we read this in verse 19, after hearing that the disciples cannot cast it out, Jesus comes back and, and hears this, and, is, and we can maybe get a sense that he was disappointed or grieved by hearing this, right? Because it sounds like he, he, think, he, he knows that the disciples should be able to do this because they have his authority, yet they do not. So from reading this verse, it definitely shows that Jesus is saddened. By Jesus saying, Faith, faithless generation, most commentators suggest that Jesus is referring to his disciples. Jesus was grieved by hearing that his disciples lacked faith. These 12 men, as we've seen throughout Mark and throughout Scripture, they've been following Jesus, right? As we saw back in chapter 1, Jesus called them to follow him, right? And, and not just to follow him, right, but to learn from him and to, and to know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And that one day after Christ is resurrected and ascends into heaven, these disciples will be sent out into the world to make Jesus known. So these same men who have been walking with Jesus, they have witnessed him do miracle after miracle, seen him personally heal multiple physical conditions, feed thousands of people with a few loaves and a few loaves of bread, fish and, and a few loaves of bread. And as I already cited in Mark 6, 7, Jesus also gave them his authority to cast out demon, demons. But knowing all this, and Jesus' judgment as we see here in this text, they still lacked faith. I love what R.C. Sproul says on this, on this verse. He says, Humanly speaking, it weighed on Jesus that his own pupils were so slow, not to mention the multitude who observed his ministry and still walked around without faith. It seems the disciples had put their trust mainly in themselves, and the result, as we see here, was that nothing happened. And I love that quote by R.C. Sproul, that his own pupils were so slow, and when I read that, I was like, oh, that's me. Like, I am so slow to believe. And I was, I've been saddened by that all week, uh, being reminded of that. I, I, too, I've seen the Lord work in my life, but yet I am still so slow to put my faith in Him, to trust in Him in, in, in every moment. Right? Does that describe you right now in this, in this moment? Do you struggle with that? So there are many things that here we can discuss, but as I, as I was reading through this, uh, one thing that Aiken, he's a uh, uh, guy that wrote a commentary, this quote struck me. He says, whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get in trouble and experience a crisis. What a valuable lesson. We never advance beyond our need for Jesus. Let me say that again. We never advance beyond our need for Christ. 
As we continue to see in this story and all throughout scripture, Jesus is the object and the source of our faith. Jesus says in in John 15, verses four through five, he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the true vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As Christians, we are called to make him known on earth. We are called to abide in Jesus, to make our home in Jesus, because he alone gives us the power to make his name known. Christian, are you abiding in God? As this, I love this chapter in John, chapter 15, and I always remember that, that if, am I abiding in Christ and him and me, from apart from him, I can do absolutely nothing, right? And so if I'm called as a Christian, if you're called as a follower of Jesus to make his name known, we can do nothing. We cannot do any of that apart from abiding in him by making our home in him. So think for a moment of yourself, as, as you have witnessed, if you have witnessed God do work in your life, ultimately by saving you from your sin, right? And day by day, getting to walk by faith, does your life reflect a continual dependency on Jesus? Does it reflect one of abiding in Christ daily? And not just for the big events, right? But for the everyday life that happens. Are you trusting in Him? Are you dependent upon Him? Or does your life reflect more of what we see here in the disciples? Ones who knew Jesus more intimately than we can ever imagine, right? Because they walked with Him and physically saw Him and experienced Him, right? But yet they still remain faithless. And so I hope uh, as you meditate on that, uh, that the text that we'll continue to see, Jesus encourages us by reminding us that our faith, he's the source and object of our faith. So at the end of verse 9, I love these last words, that in verse 19, it says, bring him to me. Right? And so as we see, Jesus realizes the disciples are, have failed, but yet he doesn't stop. He says, bring the boy to me. Right? This, this compassionate uh, show of who Jesus is. In verse 20 says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground about, uh, and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has it been, uh, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. So again, we see verse 20 that the son does not simply have a, 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 a symptom of epilepsy, but is possessed by a demon, as it says, when the Spirit saw Jesus, right? And throughout our time in Mark, we've seen that the demons recognize and know who Christ is, right? For, he, for who he truly is, that Jesus is not just a mere man, but he is the Son of God. For example, in Mark 1, 24, uh, uh, the unclean spirit says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, right? And so the demons again recognize that this is not just a mere man, but this is the Son of God, right? And they shudder at that. So in our text today, in, 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 verse, in verse 20, it shows that this demon also knows that Jesus is not just a mere man, but God. And we can infer this by the way the demon makes the boy act after seeing Christ, right? As the demon sees Christ in verse 20, it says immediately convulse the boy, right? Recognizing that this is Christ. Here, Jesus is not just here from the Father, like in verse 18, right? As the Father tells the, 
Uh, this, Jesus, this is what's happening to my son. But here in this verse, Jesus sees it firsthand what is happening to this boy. Right? As, the, as the boy falls on the ground and starts foaming at the mouth and is rigid. In verse 21, Jesus asks the question after seeing this. Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said from childhood. So like a sympathetic physician, we see here Christ asked the father again, how long, has the son, how long has his son had this condition? This also, again, as we stated earlier, is revealing the timeline of the father, father's trouble with his son's condition. Again, we can, as we read these words, hear the father and imagine what is going on as he says, as Jesus says, how long has this been happening? You can, again, imagine the father with me as he's mentally and physically exhausted, saying, from childhood, Jesus. Not just from childhood, but he is mentally and uh, physically exhausted and just seeking help, right? And so we see here him again agonizing over his son and desperate for relief. We even see uh, occasionally that the son experiences were near fatal, right, uh, as he was cast into fire and into water. So uh, one commentator was saying that the father, and, and if he was married at the time, his, his wife would have to walk with this son everywhere because it says in the text that the demon would cast their son into fire or into water, and they'd have to go and run and grab him out before he died, right? And so every day these parents were, were experiencing uh, just this agony over seeing their son and even experiencing him almost passing away in moments. Um. And so let us be reminded that back um, in verse 17, we see that the father bringing his son to Christ, it, uh, his, his hope is in him. And in verse 22, as we read, uh, it says this, And often cast him in the fire right into the water to destroy him, and listen to, the, listen to the father's request of Jesus. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. These few words maybe show an inkling, perhaps not more, of, of the hope that was left in the Father, right? The Father's crying out, if you can, please have compassion and, and help us, right? And showing an inkling, perhaps not more, of the hope that was left in the Father after him seeing his son experience this from childhood. So the Father, as we've seen, at least knows of Jesus' healing, and out of sheer desperation, the Father now turns to the only possible source of hope and help, who is Christ. In the Father's plea, we see the word compassion right there in, in verse 22. And this word compassion translates to uh, just take pity on us. Take pity on my son. Take pity on me. We also see the word help, which in the original Greek language, it consists of two smaller words, a cry and a run, is what that, is that, that word help means in the, in the original Greek. So the Father is pleading with Jesus, if you can, please earnestly move and help my son. So we see here belief mingled with unbelief. We see the father ask and say, if you can do anything. The father is possibly convinced that Jesus wants to heal his son, but is still questioning himself, can he? Can Jesus really heal my son? I know he wants to, but can he really do this? So before you judge this man's belief mingled with unbelief, Ask yourself, do I, do you believe fully in Christ to help you in all times, or do you still doubt? 
I know, as I've mentioned before, that as I've been going over this text and meditating on over it, I resonate with the Father and His words here. I struggle with unbelief in lots of areas in my life. And just this past weekend, me and my wife experienced our, our son's first big fever and uh, just a lot of other things that were really uh, scary and just kept us up all night. And in those moments, as I, as I, it's funny, as I was going through this text and I'm experiencing this, not to the... Um, not with this father experiencing, but experiencing my son uh, hurting, I was just crying out to the Lord in my heart, saying, Lord, this is hard to go through, and I believe, but I'm still struggling to believe that you, to believe that you can do something. I know you can, but in this moment, it's just so hard because I see him hurting. Right? And so that's what this father's experiencing again. I struggle again with lots of unbelief in my life, and after reading this, I started to see that my faith is characterized more by unbelief been more by belief, right? And so I started to realize that I am a person like this father who has lots of unbelief in my life. And this brought sadness to me. And so if you're sitting here also feeling with the weight of that, of your unbelief, you're in good company with me and with, these, with this father here. And as, as I wonder and as you should wonder, how can we fight against this unbelief that plagues us? In the next few verses, we will see Jesus show this hopeless father and us mercy and hope. So let's read verse 23 and 24 to hear what Jesus, how Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, the father, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So just as the father finished his request to Jesus, Jesus responds, Jesus repeats the, the Father's words, if you can. Jesus here is not rebuking the Father's request for him to show his son mercy and compassion, but Jesus is rebuking the Father's unbelief. The concern of Jesus wasn't his ability to heal, but the Father's disbelief in Christ's ability. I love this quote again by, by Aiken. He says, Faith is a reliable bridge between human weakness on the one hand, and divine sufficiency and power. Let me read that again. He says, Faith is a reliable bridge between our human weakness and on the other hand, God's divine sufficiency and power. So as Jesus, Jesus here is showing mercy by revealing the Father's unbelief, which blocked Christ from performing his power. Jesus' response to the Father is reminding him again that in fact all things are possible with him, with, for him who believes, as it says. And this statement again is pointing to the fact that Christ is God. Jesus is telling this father, if you believe in me, I will heal your boy. I am God in the flesh. I'm God incarnate who's come down to heal people and ultimately take your sin away. Right? Believe in me. Trust in me. So this, after being cut, actually brought healing to the father because he was exposed to his unbelief. Because when I heard those words of Jesus, Jesus saying, if you can, I was struck again, because I am I'm like this father in this text who says, if you can, God, please show compassion to my son. Please help me in this situation and that situation. And when Jesus says, if you can, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my unbelief. Right? And, and as it says, our unbelief is really sin, because it's me and you trusting in something besides God, 
right? And, and that is sin, right? Putting our trust in something else besides the Lord. So again, as we see here, the Father's sin of unbelief is exposed, and we see that Jesus is helping the struggling Father see clearly that his sin is unbelief. Uh, and much like we see in Doubting Thomas, if you know that story in John chapter 20, and so we see here that by Jesus pointing this out to the Father, it worked. Look at verse 24 again. Uh, and it says, uh, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The father in verse 24 desperately cries out these five words which show what faith truly is. I believe, Jesus, but help my unbelief. And Jesus showing mercy by pointing it out and rebuking his unbelief, the Father now, in his small mustard seed of faith, pours out his heart. His faith, is feeble, his faith as feeble as it is, is thrust completely onto Jesus. Instead of looking to himself and saying, what can I do, how can I help my son, right? He's thrusting all of his faith onto Jesus and saying, I know you can, Jesus, I believe in you, but I still help my unbelief. Right, he's thrusting all of his, his weight onto Christ. And Christian, this is a picture of you and I. That we are like this father who struggle with this wavering of believing and unbelief. Right? But Christ says, if, you, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Right? And so let us take heart here that Christ is, re, is rebuking me, rebuking you if you have that struggle in your life. But that rebuke is for our good. It cuts us deep and makes us groan inwardly of, why do I keep struggling with this? But then that, that cut actually heals us right, and reminds us that we can actually believe and trust in Jesus. And that's amazing. I love that, that, that picture. And again, as in Matthew, the account in Matthew of the same story in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 20 says, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So again, we see that picture of a tiny grain uh, of mustard seed. But a tri- uh, but the, and that's showing us that a tiny grain of true faith, rooted in submissiveness to God, is effective. Oh, how comforting that should bring, what comfort that should bring us, Christian. That if, if your faith is even as small as a grain of mustard seed, to know that that is true faith and we can rest in that because, again, it's not how big our faith is mainly, but in who our faith is in, which is Christ. So as professing believers, we, have, uh, uh, we as we have seen, are plagued by unbelief. We see here that it's not the size of our faith that hinders Jesus, but the lack of faith. If you are like me and your faith is more often than not the size of mustard seed, then take heart. Let us be thankful that our faith does not depend on the size but on the object and source of our faith, which is Jesus. Christian, let us continually cry out these words of verse 24, I believe, but help my unbelief. Continually asking Jesus to come to our aid so that we may overcome our unbelief. And again, we can take heart because as we're going to see, Jesus answers this man's cry. The result of the Father crying out in belief is shown in verse 25 and 27, which says this, And when Jesus saw the crowd and came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So we see that as Jesus uh, responds to the man's feeble faith by casting out the demon from his son. We see here Jesus being God in the flesh. Again, he has authority over all things. The demons are therefore subject to him and listen to his command to come out of the boy. The scene shows that Jesus heeded the Father's request to show compassion. Jesus is characterized as one who has compassion on people, as we've seen in Mark 6.34. He is a tender and loving Savior who desires to answer us. It seems the demon, as we see uh, later on, it seems that the demon did not leave without uh, causing the boy one more moment of pain, as verse 26 shows. After the demon leaves the boy, it seems that the boy was like a corpse, the text says, and most thought he was dead. Verse 27, however, continues to show that Christ showing compassion by lifting the boy up. The boy, who had been plagued since childhood with day in and day out life-threatening seizures caused by a demon, is now completely cured. What joy and total relief the father must have felt. Could you imagine the father experiencing again all of his, all his life as his son's been born, and at this moment his boy is healed? Could you imagine the relief that this father is feeling? I love what R.C. Sproul's again says on this. He says, I can only imagine that this boy's father looked at his son, then looked at Christ, and was filled with faith because Jesus had done what he said he would do. And I just want us to be reminded that uh, as Christians, the Lord is faithful, he is trustworthy, as we see here in this text. And as the story ends, we see once again we're introduced to the doubting disciples in verse 28 and 29. It says, And when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out, Jesus? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we see here the disciples show us by their question that they were not abiding or depending in Christ, but in themselves. They say, Why could we not cast it out? which suggests the spirit of pride and confidence in themselves because they had done it in the past as we saw in Mark 6. So they were still thinking that they could still do it on, but forgetting where their authority came from, which is Christ. Jesus responds by saying in verse 29, And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. When he says this kind, Jesus is refer- referencing all spiritual conflicts. As Christians, we are called to live on mission. But this mission is God's mission, and He alone is the only one who can and will accomplish it. As we strive to make God's glory known in our lives, let us remember it starts and continues on our knees. It starts with prayer, and we continue in prayer as we strive to live for God's glory in this world. Paul even reminds us of this in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where he says, Pray without ceasing. Right, Not just pray in the morning or at night, but as you are continuing to walk in your daily life, continue to pray, right, seeking His help. So again, Christian, prayer is the first and middle and last thing we're supposed to do because this shows that although our faith is weak, our God is mighty to save. So ask yourself, brother and sister, does your life reflect, reflect one of dependency in prayer? Do you just pray when big events happen or at the dinner table? As we see the disciples here in the story, we see that their pride blinded them of the reality that without Christ, they would not be able to do anything. 
Tanner reminded me this week also that as we think about prayer, uh, that prayer, our prayer life is the metric of our faith. And I like that, that picture, right, as that our prayer life is a metric of our faith. If we're not praying as much, then we have less, less faith, less dependency on the Lord, and it's, we're putting it on ourselves rather than on Christ. Right? So as you think about that, as you meditate on that this week, as you meditate on this today, does your, what does your prayer life reflect? Does it reflect one of dependency and faith on Christ, or is it reflecting more on yourself as, the, as we see the disciples here, as we see the Father here? And if, Jesus, if you see that, then heed Jesus' rebuke to your own life. That Jesus is rebuking you for your belief, but is, that is a, a mercy given to you, and to, to you and to me to remind us of where our faith is in, which is Christ. So as we end here, I just want us to be reminded, Christian, to be encouraged, to be refreshed, although we have, may have small and feeble faith, that the object of our faith is faithful, and therefore we can trust him. I pray that through this time, God has graciously, graciously rebuked you and me for our unbelief. That you feel, as I feel, the sharp cut of Jesus' words in verse 23, but then realize his words are meant to show us mercy. That, though, that, that, uh, that through him showing us mercy, the reliable bridge, remember that bridge uh, illustration, that reliable bridge of faith between our weakness and God's divine power is once again connected. Even if your faith is weak like the Father's because of your experiences in this world, I pray we would see, as the psalmist says uh, in, in Psalm 34, where he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. To taste and see that the Lord is good, we must spend time with him in his word. When our faith is assaulted with doubts, let us run to the source of our faith, the word of God. And that's on the daily, right? Not just today and maybe on Wednesday, but this is a daily struggle for me and I know for you. Right? If you're honest, that we, have, we struggle with these doubts. We, we see things in the world happening, whether in the world or you personally, and that, that brings doubt, that brings unbelief into our life. So that the fight against that is to be like the Father, crying out, I believe, help my unbelief, to spend time in the Word of God, to know that's where the source of life comes from. To, to taste and see that he is good and, that, and therefore take refuge in him. And by meditating on his word, we are like the psalmist. I love this in Psalms chapter one. Those who meditate on his word, it says, we are like a tree planted by a stream and we will never wither and yield fruit in its season. What a great picture, Christian, if you are in Christ, to meditate on his word day and night as the psalmist says. And when we do that, we will be like a tree planted by a stream and we will never wither and in due season we will yield fruit. Take heart and, and, and trust in that. I also hope and pray that, though, that through this time, if you are not in Christ, if you're questioning and asking yourself, how do I get this faith? How do I get this faith of, of, of trusting in Christ? I realize in my own life, maybe you're saying that I do not trust in Christ. I trust in self or I trust that things are going to go okay with, uh, go okay with me and things in the world are going to go okay. I hope in this time that, that you're asking that, and that's exactly the, the exact question that you should be asking. Again, we are all putting our faith into something, right? We all, as we walk out this door, we're all thinking about how can I do better this week? How can I help my family? How can I do this? And those are all okay things. I'm not saying don't trust yourself, but I'm saying don't trust yourself, if that makes sense. In the midst of you walking daily, 
Does your, is your life more reflective of trust in self or more reflective of trusting in Christ and dependency on Him? If it's more reflective on trust in self, then you may not know Jesus as your Savior. One thing in Hebrews 3.19 says, they were not able to enter because of unbelief in Christ. And I think what that's saying is that those who do not believe in Jesus are not able to enter his, into his rest. Right? Those who continue to walk in unbelief and trust in self will not enter into Christ's rest, will not be an attorney with heaven because they remain believing in themselves rather than trusting in Jesus, looking to him for their source. So I ask you seriously to, to heed these words, to wake up to the deceitfulness of, of the sin, that you would consider Jesus. Jesus says, all those who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He says, all those who thirst, to come to me and, I will get, and you will never thirst again. Those are what Jesus promise, promises us. Faith, as it is described in the Bible, only comes by hearing the word of God. It is a gift of God given to all those who would place their trust in Christ by seeking forgiveness of Jesus through Christ. Today, if you do not have this faith, this faith as is described in the scriptures, I pray that you would put your hope in Jesus, that you would turn from your sin, turn from self-reliance, and put your confidence in our great Savior, a Savior who has never broken one of his promises and never will. Never. Amen, right? These things are written, as John says, that you might believe and endure and live. So if you believe that you do not know Jesus this morning, God has given you that mercy again, that by rebuking you of your sin and causing your eyes to be fixed on the Christ, that, you, that in Christ you could see that you, he, he is your Savior, that He has come to forgive you of your sins. And I love what Mark 10.45 says as we close. I just want to read this. It says, For even the Son of Man came... Not to, be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we, we see that Christ, who should be served, but came in and served you and I, so that he, we could be reconciled to God. So are you reconciled to God? Are your sins been forgiven, and, and have you placed your faith and trust in Christ? If you have not, today is the day of salvation. Let me pray.